Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And reading again at verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who is the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. How many of us have ever said, I give up? I give up. Maybe it was in an athletic event or an exercise and we said, I give up. Maybe it was in a work assignment or an exam and we said, I give up. Maybe it was in a relationship, a a marriage, a friendship that we had invested in. We said, I give up. Maybe it was in the church. Some role that we were playing within the church. And we said, I give up. You should see me on a Monday morning. That's why I never take Mondays off. Most ministers take Mondays off, but if I took Monday off, I would have far too much time to prepare my resignation speech. That is how I feel on a Monday morning. I just want to give up. And all it would take is just one text, one email, and I'd be like, that's it. I'm going to write to Chris, and I'm going to write to Roddy, and I'm, and I'm going to give up. This morning, we're continuing our studies in seven dangers facing a healthy gospel church. We're looking at the sixth danger, the danger of giving up. We're looking at these verses under three headings, the description, then the danger, and finally the declaration. First, the description. Look at verse 7. Here the risen Jesus provides the description of who he is. We can start by noting who the letter is addressed to at the beginning of verse 7. It's addressed to an angel. Uh, Throughout this series, we've said that this word angel doesn't simply refer to a heavenly being. It can also refer to a messenger, one who speaks on behalf of another. And that is the sense in which the word is being used in Revelation 3. This letter is addressed to a messenger, and it's addressed to the messenger or angel of the church in Philadelphia. It's addressed to a church leader, but also to the congregation whom he represents as a whole. And the particular congregation on this occasion is the church at space in the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia lay around 30 miles southeast of Sardis that we looked at two weeks ago. It was on a major Roman trade route and was known as the Gateway of the East. The only problem with this city was its vulnerability to earthquakes. Ancient writers would speak about its walls being constantly cracked and the population dwelling in very insecure, unstable buildings. We can also note who the letter is addressed from in the second half of verse 7. As we've studied these letters, we've said that each has come from the risen and exalted Jesus. And here he describes himself as being the Holy One. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord, the living God, is described as being the Holy One, the set-apart One. And now Jesus applies this to himself. And he says, I am the Holy One. I am the set-apart One. He goes on and describes himself as being the true One. He's the one who is reliable and can be trusted. He is the one who is steadfast and who is stable in a world of uncertainty and instability. 
And finally, he describes himself as being the one who is the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. This is a reference to the fact that Jesus is the messianic king who grants access into the kingdom of God. He is the one in whom salvation is found. And when he opens the door to salvation, no one can shut it. And when he shuts the door to salvation, no one can open it. Now, as we consider these verses, we've been given a reminder of who Jesus is. A reminder of who Jesus is. That's what we see in Revelation 3. The risen Jesus reminds the church in Philadelphia that he is the one who is set apart. He is the one who is steadfast. And he is the one who saves. That is his timely reminder to a church who, as we'll soon see, are facing the temptation to just give up when it comes to following him. And that's such an important reminder for ourselves. The risen Jesus is the one who is set apart. He is in a class and category by himself. He is, he is nothing and no one can measure up to him. He is entirely transcendent. He is wholly other. He is set apart. He is the one who is steadfast. Every day we see the failings and the follies of our leaders being exposed. Maybe leaders within the church. Maybe you look today and you think, I can see a failing in Hugh. I can see a folly, a foible in Hugh. I'm not perfect. I'm happy to admit that I have many failings. But every day we also see the failings of our political leaders being exposed. And if, and if we've seen anything over the last few days with the SNP, we can see just how many failings have been exposed in that party. But Jesus is reliable. Jesus is consistent. Jesus is the one in whom we can place our entire confidence. And the risen Jesus is the one who saves. He's the one who has opened the way into God's kingdom through his sin-atoning death and death-defeating resurrection. And there is no other way to enter into this salvation except through him. If a person wants to enter into God's eternal kingdom, they must do business with Jesus. And the question that I want to begin today asking, friends, is, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? I'm not asking, do you know about him? I'm asking, do you know him personally? Do you know the Jesus who is set apart? Do you know the Jesus who is steadfast? Do you know the Jesus who can save from, as Donnie loves to say, the uttermost to the guttermost? Do you know this Jesus? That is what this verse is confronting us with, friends. Do you know the Jesus who is set apart? The Jesus who is steadfast? The Jesus who saves? Second, we have the the danger. Look at verses 8 to 11. Where the risen Jesus now highlights the danger facing the church in Philadelphia. Verse 8, we hear the commendation. The risen Jesus begins by telling the church in Philadelphia that he knows their works. The one who is set apart, who is steadfast, who is able to save, knows everything that there is to know about every Christian and every congregation. And he now tells the church in Philadelphia that he knows their works. He continues by speaking about himself. He says here that he has set an open door before the church in Philadelphia, which no one 
is able to shut. Now some see this as an open door for evangelism, an open door for mission opportunity. When, whenever Paul writes his letters in the New Testament, he uses that image of an open door to speak about evangelistic endeavors, evangelistic enterprises. In his letter to the Colossians, he writes, Pray for me that God may open to me a door for the word, that I might declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Pray that God would open a door through which I can take the gospel. But it makes more sense in this context to see this as the open door of salvation. Jesus has just said that he's the one who is the key of David. He's the one who opens the door into God's kingdom. And he now tells the church in Philadelphia that he's the one who has opened that door to them. They have been brought into God's kingdom because Jesus has unlocked the door. He has opened the door and he said to them, come in. And Jesus moves so from speaking about himself to speaking about the church in Philadelphia. And he says that he knows that this church have little power. This is a small church. They're not making much impact in their community. It's not a trendy church. It's not the kind of church that theological students in Jerusalem Theological Seminary would want to pastor. I remember when we were in uh, the Free Church College and we would be having discussions as students about where we would want to be ministers and And there was one congregation, and I'm certainly not going to name it, and we would often joke and say, whatever happens, we will not go there. We didn't want to be there. That's the kind of church that the church in Philadelphia was. But Jesus commends this very, very small church for two things. He commends them because they have kept his word, and he commends them because they have not denied his name. We can move from the commendation to the comfort in verses 9 and 10. There is in Jesus comforts the church in Philadelphia with the promise of vindication. Look at verse 9. He speaks about the synagogue of Satan. There was a Jewish community in Philadelphia and they were making life very difficult for the Christian community in Philadelphia. They were, they were doing their utmost to increase the pressure and persecution on these Christians. And Jesus denounces them here as a synagogue of Satan because they're opposed to God, they're opposed to his Christ, and they're opposed to his people. They are a synagogue of Satan. And Jesus says what he is going to do to them. He's going to make them come and bow before the feet of the church in Philadelphia. And when this happens, they will have to acknowledge that Jesus loved these Christians. But the risen Jesus also comforts the church in Philadelphia, not just with the promise of vindication, but also the promise of preservation. Look at verse 10. Once again, Jesus highlights that he is aware that these Christians have kept his word about patient endurance. And because of this, he says that he is going to keep them from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world and that will try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus speaks about a coming hour of trial, an hour of trouble, an hour of turmoil, an hour of turbulence that is going to come on the whole world. And Jesus says that he is going to keep the Christians in Philadelphia from this. 
Now he is not saying that he is going to somehow miraculously remove them from it. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he is going to preserve them through it. He is going to protect them through it. He is going to guard them through it. He is going to keep a watch over them through it. That is his comfort to this church. But we can move from the comfort to the council in verse 11. Where Jesus proceeds to assure the church in Philadelphia that he is coming soon. That's a reference to his second coming. And when Jesus comes again, all the pressure will end. All the persecution will end. Everything is going to be better for these Christians in Philadelphia when Jesus comes again. And with that assurance ringing in their ears, Jesus gives this word of counsel. Look at verse 11. He tells them to hold fast to what they have. He is urging them to continue keeping his word. He is urging them to continue and not denying his name. He is urging them to persevere in what they've been doing up until now. And he tells them about what will happen if they continue to hold fast to what they have. He says that no one will steal their crown. In the Greco-Roman world, a victorious athlete would receive a laurel crown after he was victorious in whatever event it was. And Jesus is now counselling the Christians in Philadelphia to keep on going. And he says, keep on going in the race of faith. So that you will not lose the victor's crown that I will give at the end of time. Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. And when I come, I am going to give a victor's crown to all my people who were victorious, who completed the race of faith. And he's saying to that church in Philadelphia, don't give up so that you will not lose that victor's crown. Friends, as we consider these verses, we are being confronted with the danger of giving up. The danger of giving up. That's what we see in Revelation 3. This church in Philadelphia were keeping Jesus' word. They were not denying his name. But at the same time they had very little power. And they were experiencing pressure. And they were experiencing persecution. And they were thinking to themselves, let's just throw in the towel. Let's just give up. Let's just stop going on in the race of faith. And Jesus commands them to hold fast to what they have so that they will not lose the victor's crown that they will receive when he comes again. And friends, that is a very important caution for ourselves. The temptation to give up is a great danger facing every congregation. I knew one congregation on the mainland They were based in a town of about 7,000 people. Lots of opportunities for outreach. Lots of opportunities for evangelism. There's no other real gospel preaching church in the area. You thought, what potential? But they had declined in size. They'd been without a minister and without their own building for a number of years. And on one occasion at a presbytery meeting, one of their elders got up and he said... I can't remember when we last saw someone new coming to one of our services. 
He looked back at 20 years of being an elder and he said, I can't remember when we last saw anyone new coming into our church. They were losing heart. And any time a new proposal was presented to them about how they could take things forward, maybe what minister they could approach, maybe a building that they could purchase, maybe an outreach initiative that they could engage in, they would say, it won't work. They would say, we tried that before. Every single proposal met with a negative problem. They were on the verge of giving up. But the temptation to give up is also a great danger facing every professing Christian. Do you know what anniversary this is today, friends? Three years since we were told to stay at home. Three years since we were able to meet in Stornway Primary. These last three years have had a huge impact on church attendance, not just in our own congregation, but throughout the country. Every minister I speak to, every elder I speak to, speaks about those who haven't come back since lockdown. Now, some have moved on to other churches, others have become housebound, but others, this is very serious, others have opted out of church life altogether. They've wandered away from the path of discipleship. They've given up. And Revelation 3 makes it crystal clear that such people are in great danger of losing their heavenly crown. They are in great danger of missing out on Jesus' promised salvation. Maybe today you can see that you've been letting go of what you have. Maybe today you you are sitting in this building and you can see that you have been on the verge of just giving up as a follower of Jesus. In fact, if I was to be honest, maybe most of us have thought at times over these last three years, it would be easier just to give up. I've spoken with members of our own session who've said that they felt like giving up. There were even very dark moments for myself and I thought about giving up. And maybe today is giving you a fresh opportunity to take a grip and a grasp of what you have. This morning I want to ask each of us as individuals and as a congregation, are we persevering or are we giving up? When it comes to the Christian life. Are we persevering or are we giving up when it comes to following Jesus? Can I ask you today friend. Are you in the Christian race? Are you in the race of faith? Or have you opted out? And maybe you're still sitting in church today. But you've opted out of the race of faith. Or switching the imagery around a little. Are the signs that you are passing in life's journey showing that the heavenly city and the heavenly crown is getting nearer and nearer or further and further away? remember driving up to Caithness when I was a minister and I would be driving that 110 miles from Inverness to Thurso and 
and all the time you would see that sign saying Thurso, 110 miles away, then 90 miles, then 70 miles, then 10 miles, getting closer and closer. Friends, as you are making your way through this life, are the signs that you are passing in life's journey showing that the heavenly city and the heavenly crown is getting nearer and nearer or further and further away? Third and finally, we come to the declaration. Look at verses 12 and 13. Where the risen Jesus now declares what will happen to those who act on his words. Verse 12, we hear the encouragement. The risen Jesus speaks about the one who conquers and keeps his word to the end. That language of conquering or overcoming describes a living and active faith that perseveres to the end. On this occasion, it describes a person who says, I am not going to give up when it comes to following after Jesus. And here there is in Jesus says that he will make the one who conquers a pillar in the temple of his God. In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where the Lord was present. You remember in Psalm 27 that we've just sung, David expresses that longing to, to be in the house of God, the temple of God, all the days of his life. And Jesus now says that the one who conquers will become a pillar in the temple of his God and will never go out of it. He's speaking about the future. Where those who have persevered and completed the race will know the permanent presence of the living God. And the risen Jesus goes on to say that he will write the name of his God and the name of the city of his God and his own new name on them. Don't know if any of you have ever seen the film Toy Story. In the film Toy Story, each of the toys is stamped with Andy's name to mark them as his. They belong to him. They are his possession. Or, or I can think back to a number of years ago when I was still living with my parents and, and I bought these two new pillows and I thought they were fantastic pillows. And I lived in fear that my brother David would take them and snore and slaver and sweat all over them. And so I took in big, bold letters, I wrote on the label HF, to mark them as mine. They, they belong to me. I've not done it with mine and Natalie's pillows just yet, but it's still quite tempting, but, but she won't let me do it. But it marked it as mine. And that's the image that we have here, where Jesus speaks about placing the name of his God, the name of the city of his God, New Jerusalem, and his own new name on those who persevere. He's saying that those who persevere, those who don't give up, will be marked as those who belong to God, belong to his city, and belong to his son. They will be his possession. And we can then move from that glorious encouragement to the exhortation in verse 13. Over the last few weeks, we've said that throughout the Gospels, we hear Jesus issuing the call, let the one who has ears to hear, listen. It functions as an exhortation to a person to open their mind, open their heart to what Jesus is saying, to act on it, put it into practice. And here there is in Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He is exhorting the church in Philadelphia. To open their minds, open their hearts to what he's saying and to act on it, put it into practice. Do you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being encouraged to listen to and act on what Jesus is saying. 
That's what we see in Revelation 3. The risen Jesus has commended the church in Philadelphia for keeping his word and for not denying his name. He has counseled them to hold on to what they have and to not give up in the race of faith. And he now exhorts them to listen to and act on what he says. And he promises them that if they do so, they will be pillars in the temple of his God. And he will write his name and the name of his God and the name of his city of his God on them. And that, friends, is such an encouragement to ourselves. One of my heroes is a Christian runner and missionary Eric Little, subject of the film Chariots of Fire. And on one occasion, Eric Little said this. It has been a wonderful experience to compete in the Olympic Games and to bring home a gold medal. But since I've been a young lad, I've had my eyes on a different prize. You see, each one of us is in a greater race than any I have run in Paris. And this race ends when God gives out the medals. This race ends when God gives out the medals. Friends, that is what motivates us to keep on going, to persevere, to to not give up when it comes to the Christian life. The promise, the prize of a secure and magnificent future. A future in the permanent presence of God. As the permanent possession of this God. That's the amazing promise that was held out to the Christians in Philadelphia. Think about these people for a minute. They are living in a city that was prone to earthquakes. They were living in a city that they could be told to evacuate any day. Think of that. Living, just wondering, will there be an earthquake today? Will I have to leave my family? Will I have to leave my home? Will I have to leave everything that I have ever worked for? And they're now being told, you will be the permanent, in the permanent presence of God as the permanent possession of God forever and ever if you persevere to the end. And that is the amazing promise that is held out to Christians living in Lewis. We're living in a time of economic instability. We don't know what's going to happen with the banks. We don't know what's going to happen with our pensions. We don't know what's going to happen with our finances. We're living at a time of economic instability. We're living at a time of political instability. We don't know who the leader of the SNP is going to be at the end of this month. We don't even know if there will be an SNP party at the end of this month. We don't know what's going to happen. It's an uncertain time. And the risen Jesus promises a secure and magnificent future to all those who persevere in the Christian life. All those who don't give up. Despite how weak and powerless they might feel. So this morning, friends, the risen Jesus is simply exhorting us as individuals and as a congregation not to give up when it comes to living for him. Maybe, maybe the devil's whispering in your ear to give up. Maybe your friends and family are whispering in your ear to give up. Maybe your own heart is whispering in your ear to give up. And Jesus is saying, think of the glorious future that awaits those who persevere to the end. Friends, are we listening? 
to what he says. Are we going to say today, I will not give up because I have a glorious future promised to me by the risen Jesus? Let's pray.